there are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. Video killed the radio star when MTV went live at 12.01 a.m. on August 1st, and it's impossible to overstate the crater-sized impact that had on pop culture. 13,000 air traffic controllers walked out, and Ronald Reagan threatened to fire them if they didn't get back to work immediately. Three days later, that's exactly what he did. The Waltons said goodbye to John Boy for the last time, and in court, John Hinckley begged for mercy and pled innocent to shooting Ronald Reagan, while Mark David Chapman was sentenced to 20 years to life for killing John Lennon. That's all stuff that happened in August of 1981, and we still found time to see movies. Scott, how are you today? Hi, Drew. Welcome to August of 1981, month of lots of crazy stuff, some really great stuff, some really forgotten, obscure, weird stuff. Uh, well, this this and- next run of months here gets really weird. I... You know, a lot of times now when you look at summer, and I, I consider August like part of the summer lineup now, it feels like they think about it and they try to like schedule August up. You look back at the 80s and that is not the case. It looks like they just randomly, whatever was ready, they just shoved out. A month like August really taps into the whole idea of what the podcast is about, I think, in that, you know, when we get to the big movies this month, everyone will go, oh, I love that one. Oh, I've seen that one. But then there's also a handful of, Oh, I've heard of that. Or what the hell is that? You yeah, know, I think I think there's there's quite a few of those. Um, if you love eighties all over, then please support us via our Patreon page. That's www.patreon.com backslash eighties all over. Thank you to everybody who has supported the Patreon. Patreon, <laughs> uh, who has uh, tweeted about the show, who has uh, retweeted us every time we ask you to to watch a movie. Drew, how often do we get tweets about used cars and dead and buried? Oh, it's great. And and I hope that there will be plenty of more of those. I think there's one this month that I'm really excited about that I think people are going to discover and devour. It's like a giant movie. So It really is like the bis- the biggest compliment. The thanks of course goes to the filmmakers, but you know, as messengers, we are very grateful uh that that we're able to like, you know, steer people in the direction of some some stuff that they really like. That means a lot to us. So, so uh we we appreciate all your comments, iTunes reviews and uh tweets and Facebook posts. So, to keep spreading the word for 80s all over as we dive into one weird month. Now, I want to try an experiment with the beginning of this because there is a group of movies that we're going to talk about at the beginning here that are just bonkers. And I uh, bonkers copyright. How did this get made? 2000. 
<laughs> okay, yeah, I think Jason owns Bonkers and Bananas. So, but they they between June and Jason, they make Bonkers funny. Uh, I'd never reading Bonkers, not that funny. Hearing Bonkers, funny. So for this one, I want to be a studio executive, and Scott, I want you to pitch me the first movie for the week, and and don't don't give me the title. Just pitch it like you would try and sell it in the room. Uh, hey, Mister McQueenie, thanks for uh, thanks for meeting with me. Sure. I'm a screenwriter from Brooklyn, apparently, and uh, <laughs> I would like to uh, pitch you on this idea I have. It sounds great. Let's go. Carol Burnett. I love her. And Alan Arkin. Love him. They're homeless people. Oh, oh okay. Wacky homeless people. That lovable kind of, you don't feel bad for them at all, that they have nowhere <laughs> to live and no home. Just wacky. <laughs> you know, like, okay. just, you know, um, think like 1932 just off the top of my head they discover a briefcase with government documents in it Uh, okay i also got jack warden i got danny aiello i got danny glover i got sid haig vincent chiavelli and ruth buzzy can i have a check if sid haig's in it it's gonna be funny so i'm in i'm calling it choo choo and the philly flash okay please stay seated i'm calling security wednesday Burnett and Alan Arkin have something secret that everybody wants. It's Mad Cat Comedy, Choo Choo and the Philly Flash. I love Alan Arkin. Oh, well, yeah. And he is stranded here. This is a terrible character that he can't crack. And I've never really seen that before. It's one of the first cases where I've ever watched Alan Arkin just flounder. Like, he's drowning in this movie. Yeah, uh, it's weird because I get the impression watching this that, like, when you're on the Carol Burnett show and you're doing a sketch, that sketch is going to be seen on Wednesday night. And then it might be seen on reruns a couple more times, and that's it. So if you made a, a, a six-minute sketch that was as dire and as unfunny as Choo Choo and the Philly Flash, it would play on a variety show. People would quickly go, oh, not your best material, Alan. And then it would never be talked of again. But because it was extended into a feature, it is now immortalized. <laughs> I'm really baffled by Carol Burnett's film career, and I, I love Carol Burnett. Hey, you know what, Drew? I don't think you or I have to say out loud that they're both like legends of comedy. They're amazingly talented people, and boy, it's oh like boy. <laughs> people were angry at her when they gave her movies, though, man. She is helpless to, and I think they're both helpless, to, to fix what's wrong with this stuff to begin with. And I, I agree, the homeless stuff and the mental illness stuff, we're going to get into this with another movie in this list, but... It's not funny. It's not funny to watch them be Alan Arkin is so broken as a character in this movie that when you're supposed to laugh at him, you can't because he's pathetic and sad. It's not funny. That's the problem. It is a it is not a funny film. It's just bizarre. And I think there's something weird about the go to hook in any of these movies is wacky characters. And then they get it, it involved in a thing where people are trying to kill them. None of this works now. OK, I'm going to be a filmmaker, and I'm going to pitch you a movie. Uh, M- Mr. McWeeny, come come on in. We hear you have a pitch for us. Thank you. I do. And uh, I- I've been working on this. I feel really good about it, okay? So here it is. Oh, I'm all ears. They're building a freeway in Florida, and a small town bribes the government team planning the project to make sure they'll get off-ramps built to their town. Now, here's the funny part. They don't build the off-ramps. So... They set out to do anything it takes to make sure tourists visit their town on their way south. We hire a cast of like 100 people and we get them all driving south. So we meet all the tourists and we see them on the road over and over and they keep crisscrossing. And it's like it's a mad, 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 mad convoy. And there's an elephant that water skis. Now, here's the best part. 
We have a theme song that we're going to play 500 times, and it's from the director of Midnight Cowboy. So it's hilarious. I'm calling it Honky Tonk Freeway. Where do I sign? That's now my now my my producer, LA producer, is now a, a Texas oil tycoon. Where do I sign to do Honky Tonk Freeway? I want to put twenty five million dollars into this film. Well, Mister Leghorn, if it moves or grooves, you want to get lucky on wheels, skis, or hooves. You'll find it on the Honky Tonk Freeway. Honky Tonk Freeway, rated PG. Starts Friday at selected theaters near you. Check newspaper for listings. This movie, this movie cost $25 million in 1981. It's one of the biggest disasters of all time. It is a phenomenal bomb. Yeah. The numbers that I remember reading it, that it was cost over 25 and made three. Uh <laughs> It's just you got to even wonder why would you even call your movie this? What, all right, what what this is movie is going for? Somebody watched Nashville and said, mm, "It's a little too literate. Let's make it a lot stupider and kind of mix it with the Smokey and the Bandit vibe." So you, that's kind of what it is. If they had hired, here's the thing: if they had hired Jonathan Demi, they might have had a shot at this movie. They might have had a shot. Like he could have pulled this off. Correct. John, you nailed it in your pitch, sir. John Schlesinger, a.k.a. the director of Midnight Cowboy Mar- Marathon Man, is not the guy to direct a wacky, uh, broad... We were watching your movies and we saw Sunday Bloody Sunday and we thought, you know what he should do? Exploitation comedy. It reminds me of Scavenger Hunt a lot because from 79 because the, it starts in the Florida town. And it got Bill Devane as the mayor. And I don't care how bad your movie is. William Devane is fun to watch. And then, you know, it's like, all right, it's kind of a limp setup, but I'm down. And then the movie just leaves this Florida town and jumps from subplot to subplot to subplot. That's the thing is the subplots take so long to set up. And you got stuff like, okay, I'm Daniel Stern and I'm a Coke dealer and I'm going to manage to be in everyone's car for five minutes at some point. I'll tell you the one that blew my mind. The one that's really kind of sad and heartbreaking is Jessica Tandy as an aging alcoholic who starts drinking at breakfast and her husband just wants her to stop drinking a little bit so that maybe she can remember the end of a day with him. And eventually he just kind of gives in and starts drinking more with her. It's a really fucking crazy subplot for them and especially if you've seen later films with tandy and cronin where you kind of got a sense of how they started to work together as an older couple casting directors started to figure out how to use them together obviously cocoon is the best example of that but this is a case where it's uncuffed and they're playing it so real that you're not allowed to laugh at it there's few things that are more painful than like over the top funny that's not funny you're both annoyed as if you were, and then you literally have empathy for the actors and the, you know, when something is that witless, you're like, oh, I'm, I bet I feel bad for everyone involved. And that includes me. Drew, at least share with the, uh, the our listeners the one most interesting component of Honky Tonk Freeway and just rattle off who's in it. You have David Rash, uh, who, you know, is Sledgehammer. You have Howard Hessman. You have Terry Garr. Young Peter Billingsley, pre-Christmas story. You have Bo Bridges, Beverly D'Angelo, Daniel Stern, Celia Weston, who you know from a million things, and she is young and lovely here. 
Deborah Rush, who we know from a million things, playing a nun who desperately wants to not be a nun anymore. Geraldine Page is the older nun. George Junza, Joe Grafasi, who you've seen in 15 million things. It's a unbelievable lineup. And those are just the people heading south. Then you also have the Texas town that's trying to get everybody to come to the town. And you've got that's where you've got another who's who of people like William Devane and Jerry Harden and John Ashton and Alice Beardsley. And you do, you recognize everybody. And that was fun. I will be honest. It makes me think that like when you hire a bunch of established character actors, that's not cheap. Like when you have this many character actors, that's I can't imagine like what, what they thought they were making. Well, I mean like David Rashi subplot is he's a pimp who, as he heads South, managed to recruit more and more girls for his car full of, of hookers, eventually managing to even convert a nun. Yeah. It is really weirdly wrongheaded. Okay. Let's move on. Okay. So this next one, uh, these, these next couple, I, I will drop the pitching thing, but it's, Oh, but I was fully prepared. I was are totally. You? Okay. Then pitch this one. I'm dying to hear your pitch for this. Uh, no. Nah. Oh, Oh, I'm sorry. Come in. Hi, my name is Scott Weinberg. I'm an aspiring screenwriter from Philadelphia. And uh, let me just, can I just do a little twirl before I sit down? Please. What a lovely, lovely blouse. Thank you. Uh, Anyway, I have um, personally compromising photographs of Gabe Kaplan, Alex Karras, and Robert Klein. And I'm blackmailing them to star in this horrifically bad movie that I wrote about three mentally disabled uh, men who uh, decide that after their car is destroyed by a pothole, that they're going to uh, attack City Hall and and take the mayor hostage and destroy him. Uh, It's called Nobody's Perfect, but I want to spell perfect with a K. I'll say yes, but only if I can get copies of those photos. Drew, how long did you make it into Nobody's Perfect before you really thought, how much of this do I have to watch? I had to watch it in four chunks because I couldn't do it. And I I grew up... uh, obsessed with Mel- Welcome Back, Cotter. I One of my all-time favorite sitcoms, Gabe Kaplan, had a very limited film career, but his stand-up, I, I still... I say very limited range. I was like, yes. Well, yes. As an actor, yes. As, you know, that's why Welcome Back, Cotter fit him so well, because he didn't have to do much heavy lifting as an actor, and a lot of it, he got to do just a lot of his shtick in front of the class. As an, a film actor, he did Fast Break in 79, and then he did this and, and a film called Tulips, which we'll get to in a couple episodes. And that's pretty much the film career of Gabe Kaplan, and not a good actor. Okay, so you know the guy who plays Styles in uh, Teen Wolf? Jerry Levine. Uh, I worked with Jerry a couple of times as a director, and uh, he he's done a lot of theater over the years. And we were working with Jerry. He told us that he did a production of American Buffalo, the David Mamet play, where he was in the cast and Gabe Kaplan was cast <laughs> as, as well. And... He said about three weeks into rehearsals, when it was clear that Gabe Kaplan simply wasn't going to learn the script, if you've ever done theater, and especially if you've ever done David Mamet, you learn the script. You learn every syllable of the script, and you learn every pause in the script. It's very particular. David Mamet writes music, and that's what you're supposed to learn. Well, Kaplan wasn't going to learn it. So about three weeks into rehearsal, somebody said something. Uh, Gabe, we really got to get on book. And Gabe Kaplan's response was, yeah, um, I don't really do that. I just like to keep it fresh. 
Yeah, that's not how you do David Mamet, yeah. though. Because <laughs> um, so. all, all good actors know you, how to keep it fresh. Don't prepare. <laughs> just just don't learn the word. Just be completely <laughs> extemporaneous and let the other actors just leave them hanging. So, uh, yeah, nobody's perfect with a K in the perfect. That's the about the the limit of the wit. It's again, the mental illness thing is not funny. And their mental illnesses are so particular. Gabe Kaplan can't remember anything at all. For longer than 15 Alex seconds. Harris, what his imaginary wife goes he, he with has him an imagine No, his mother. He has an imaginary mother. Robert Klein turns into several different people, including Eleanor Roosevelt. Oh, it's hilarious when he wears a dress. Okay, Gabe Kaplan, not a great actor. Alex Karras, football player turned actor, very lovable guy. Robert Klein, undeniably brilliant comedian. But it seems like they just said, all right, we all have a very specific niche. And then they all do that niche together for. 90 minutes. It feels like a pilot episode of a sitcom or three episodes that they just wedged together. If it wasn't a film, if it was just a, a, a sitcom that came and went, it'd be forgotten about. Nobody would ever even care about discussing it on a podcast. But since it became a film, damn it, we have to discuss Nobody's Perfect with a K. I wonder sometimes you, there's a reason that these guys didn't go on to tons more work. The The guy who wrote this, Tony Kenrick, it, it's based on a novel of his, actually. I've got to imagine the novel is different in tone or somehow nails it. Don't it's directed by Peter Boners, who aside from Dick Wolf has the funniest name in show business. Directorial debut of Peter. I pronounce it Boners. <laughs> That's the French pronunciation, but yes. And you know, Peter, he's a terrific comic actor. You know him as Bob Newhart's buddy, the dentist who has the office with him on the Bob Newhart show, and a terrific comic actor, and has done everything, and has directed TV for a million years, and is very good at what he does. He directed a police academy. All right, Drew, show some yeah. respect for Peter Bonaire. All right, so this last one I'm going to pitch you. I, I okay, so there's this there's this couple of hustlers. They decide to kidnap a kid from a wealthy family. Now, to make sure they pull it off safely, they both get jobs working as a maid and a chauffeur in the house. It stars the hippie DJ from WKRP and the lady from Emmanuel. And here's the kicker. She has sex with a 14-year-old kid every 10 or 15 minutes. Here is a check for $1.4 million, sir. I'm rich. No, this is to make private lessons. When a young man loses his serve, his nerve, Thank you. his touch, his balance, and his drive, he doesn't need help from his friends. What he needs are private lessons. What happened to him should happen to you. Private Lessons, rated R. Starts Friday at a theater near you. Check newspapers for times. Early 80s, I was still way young. So I, there's a lot of these films I'm watching for the first time, like <clears throat> Choo Choo and the Philly Flash. Uh, but here is a film that I discovered with my friends in the mid-80s. and I can't imagine why. Why was that, Scott? Why would you watch this movie? Because that's when we were discovering what testicles did to our bodies, yeah, our testicles made us want to see na half-naked ladies in sexual situations. And, like, we like this movie. I'm not going to lie. We we thought we dug this movie because, you know. Of course, because it, it, it's it, playing right into the fantasy of every 14-year-old, which is that Sylvia Crystal's going to show up at your house and teach you. Private Lessons is kind of tacky. I was, I was having a conversation last night with Phil Noble Jr., who writes for Birth Movies Death. And we, we were going back and forth about the fact that he wrote a great piece about this movie in particular 
he watched them for the same reasons you and I watched them, which is you found cable in the early 80s and you were looking for anything that had boobs in it. The sexuality in them is so not okay and it's so weird and it's so broken that that you at 12 or 13 or 14 when you're watching these movies you don't know why it's wrong you have no sense of what's wrong with it because you don't understand sexuality yet so all you know is that these movies are selling you this weird unhealthy slightly obsessive very strange version of adult grown-up sex it's the second howard hasman film this this episode he's fairly rotten in this and it's because the role is so rotten he's good at playing a dick but it really loses the what makes howard hessman so so likable is when he's like a charming rogue that's what howard that's howard hessman's appeal is like the you know like the wise ass that you like the the troublemaking uncle that you like and this he's just gross he's literally like a pimp he came out of Second City in Chicago, and I he was he had great comic background, and he had great comic chops, and I think I wanted that Howard Hessman when he popped up in films, and almost inevitably that's not what we got. Like WKRP really does still stand as one of the few times I think he ever got to really express real personality. Yeah, it, it's a shame. Howard Hessman is a, a great comic actor, and I don't know what happened with his film career, but you know he could have taken a, a left and become like you know, an iconic comic actor, but I still love the guy. You know, this was the first American film shot by Jan de Bont. Yeah, a lot of Jan de Bont's early stuff is exploitation. He came out of it, and I think it's one of the reasons that he worked so efficiently in the studio system is he learned to shoot fast, and I think for a lot of directors, that, that was the appeal of him. Yeah, and you'd never know it by watching the film, because a lot, like, we watched Roar, okay, and that's also shot by Jan de Bont, and you can see his eye in that film. Yeah. Well, that film is so in- inventive, and he had to come up with ways to not die. Yeah, so. yeah. And Private Lessons, the, it would be nice to say, oh, it's really well shot for an exploitation film, but it's not. It's ugly. Uh, if you have any interest in Private Lessons, the Lionsgate DVD has a fascinating audio commentary on it. That's all I'm going to say. Uh, beyond that, if you have fond recollections of your childhood about Private Lessons. Keep it that way. Do not revisit it. It is not, I wouldn't say toxic, but it's pretty damn tacky. You know, and the, the, a lot of the the rest of these in this chunk here, the, the podcast, the, these are fairly straightforward movies. Like the thing I, these first four had is they're all built around weird twists or weird hooks. And, you know, sometimes, sometimes a karate movie is just a karate movie. Case in point, an eye for an eye. Meet the professor. The professor has quite a way with the ladies. He is like no other man, but neither is Chuck Norris in an eye for an eye. (laughs) Chuck Norris doesn't need a weapon. He is a weapon. Oh, boy. Chuck Norris in an eye for an eye. Rated R. All right, well, you know what, Drew? We're going to leave this one up to you because you know what my general rule of thumb is. If Chuck Norris is in it, I'm taking a nap. I think I somehow miss seeing this one. And my dad was a Chuck Norris fanatic, so I saw all of these, I thought. All right, I will say this. An eye for an eye in the uh, Chuck Norris. uh, I would say that Chuck Norris has never had a supporting cast as impressive as an eye for an eye. Because not only does it co-star Terry Kaiser, a.k.a. Bernie, from Weekend at Bernie's, and Richard Roundtree, a.k.a. Shaft. Who is the cop who yells at Chuck Norris. Yeah, it also stars Mako, Christopher Lee, and Professor Tanaka. 
the reason I think I missed this one is I did not know there was a film where Chuck Norris beats the living shit out of and then chokes Christopher Lee, because if I did, I probably would have watched that scene many, many more times than I have. I would say it's not the lower tier of Chuck Norris movies. It's not the upper tier. It's not quite Code of Silence, but it's an okay cop film. Chuck and his partner get set up one night in an alley. They're lured out. His partner's killed and he almost dies. And then he gets fired from being a cop or he quits because he doesn't like the way somebody talked to him. And then a reporter he knows is killed. And then she calls him for help and he loses his badge and he goes on a one man war against the triads and he kicks a lot of people. I think that's it. I don't like Chuck Norris. This was long before his politics. This has, you know, I don't care about that. There's a lot of actors I like who I don't like their politics, but I think I think he's pretty dull too. I think with with Chuck Norris, it really ultimately came down to, and this is the same thing that's true of early Steven Seagal movies. There's a couple of them where you had a decent director, and in Chuck's case, Code of Silence is the best because you have Andrew Davis, and so the film itself is a pretty decent cop movie that he happens to be in. I think Eye for an Eye. It's an okay cop film. It's not great. It's not terrible. It's fine. But he's kind of a lug. I'm not a big fan of Chuck on screen either. I am less of a fan of completely shaven Chuck Norris. Oh, God. Yeah. What is that all about? This In this movie, he's just weird looking. And I really do think beard and mustache makes all the difference in terms of me buying him on film. Without a beard and mustache, it, he looks like an extra that somehow got the center of the screen. It just doesn't work for me. I, I, For me to enjoy something this basic, I need somebody more interesting as your hero. I think that's the other thing is martial artists go, eh. For me, when I watch a martial arts film, it's like watching a, a dance movie. Like I want to see somebody who's really good at what they do. Chuck looks like he can throw a kick, sort of. So we're going to, with this next film, I am probably going to get screamed at. So I'm going to let you start it, and I'm going to jump in. If I were to list, say, the 10 films that I find most fascinating from the 1980s, I have grown up absolutely fascinated by, and I probably have seen the film more times than anybody you know, a bizarre slapstick horror comedy called Student bodies hello it's me the heavy breather from every horror film you've ever seen you know me first i terrorize my victim by the telephone then i choose my murder weapon a gun nah too easy a hatchet nah i always use a hatchet for this movie i want something very frightening and deadly. Ah. Then I climb the stairs to surprise my victims. Why do they always live upstairs? This movie's a comedy, so killing's not so easy. The movie's called Student Bodies, so I picked the typical American high school. Mr. Peters, you're naked. Yes, Toby. All these years, I've been secretly naked underneath my clothes. Meet the rest of the faculty. The shop teacher, the guidance counselor, the janitor with the IQ of a handball. What's he doing? Sex education teacher. This is totally unnecessary, ugly, and gets in the way. Your mother? She also told me that sex was bad and dirty, uh, but only with my father. With everyone else, she said it was great. I'm into murder myself, and student bodies are going to be everywhere. 
Gypsy Student Bodies, a killer comedy. You mentioned this on Twitter the other day, and I watched the reaction, and here's why I know I'm going to get screamed at, because almost immediately people started, oh my God, I love that one. Oh my God, that's so great. Oh, it's so funny. Let me preface your thoughts with this. This is a bad movie. Sloppily made, badly written, mostly terribly acted, scattershot sketch comedy compilation. It is not a good film. Now go. I remember for years trying to see the film because I missed it in the theater, tried to catch up with it. And when I did, I was fairly sure that what I'd seen was the cut version. This is actually a relatively tame movie. It's an R-rated film, and they literally make a joke in the film about how they earn the R, and it's not a joke. That is how they earn the R. I've heard for years that Michael Ritchie, who I believe his name was taken off as producer, I had heard for years people say that they thought Michael Ritchie was a co-director who had you know, chosen to go Alan Smithy on it. I don't buy it. I've probably done more research on this movie than most people have on The Exorcist or Raiders of the Lost Ark. By my understanding, it was Michael Ritchie was the director. It was at the cusp of a nasty writer's strike. It is definitely a writer's strike project. The prevailing answer is that he took his name off of it for writer's strike reasons. And then the, the screenwriter, Mickey Rose, got directorial credit. But see, I've seen that theory, too. But Mickey Rose was in the guild. So I don't understand how Mickey Rose could put his name on the movie, but Michael Ritchie couldn't. And here's the other thing that that baffles me. Michael Ritchie's not incompetent. Michael Ritchie has shot movies before. Michael Ritchie's not head injury bad, incompetent. And this movie, it's amazing that it's in focus. It's so inept. I don't buy that Ritchie's work was this bad. And then he took I think he took his name off as producer. Yeah, just for a little context, Mickey Rose uh, was a screenwriter who uh, co-wrote uh, What's Up, Tiger Lily, Bananas, and um, uh, Take the Money and Run with Woody Allen. So he had been obviously established. Now, if you were to watch Student Bodies and say, does that look like something that was came from a Woody Allen collaborator? You'd probably say, no, it does not. It is, like I said, a lot of the actors are very amateurish. The thing is cut together seemingly at random, and Act 3... Or the, the let's say the very end of the film, the last 15 minutes, make virtually no sense. Having said all that, I still fucking love this movie. That's amazing, because that's where my disconnect is. I, I agree with you on everything you just said, except, and I love this movie. I love it. There's, there's long stretches of student bodies where all I can do is roll my eyes. But if we need to get into the whole idea of loved it as a kid and I can't fully wash it out of my DNA... That I get, and that I understand, and there's, and we're going to get to one of those later this year that I just rewatched, where I have defended a film since 1981, and I'm done. My affection remains, but I'm done defending it. This was like, because every weekend, me and my uh, my neighborhood friends, we would get like Hell Knight, The Fun House, Blood Sucking Freaks, whatever we could grab, we would like grab. And then I guess student bodies just hit us at the right moment, because I just, even like the film opens with like Halloween. Friday the 13th, Jamie Lee Curtis's birthday. This stuff killed us at 14 years old. We thought it was hilarious. This movie clearly wanted to be the teen slasher version of Airplane. That's not what they got, but that's clearly what they were going for. Is, is somebody saw Friday the 13th and, and, and realized that this slasher craze was just getting started. And if you look at the calendar, it's pretty impressive that they banged this out so damn quickly. And, of course, it was distributed by Paramount, the company that distributes Friday the 13th. 
Uh, and I will say that I was so obsessed with this movie that when several years ago it was finally announced on DVD by Olo Films, I got in touch with them directly and I said, how much if I wanted to buy a handful? And I gave them out. I, I don't know if I ever sent you a copy. I know I sent Adam Green and Joe Lynch a copy. Did you ever end up getting one of those from me? I, d- I did not. But oh, we maybe we weren't tight back then. I'm sorry. It's just one of those movies where I think because I had wanted to see it for so long and I remembered the poster for so long that when I did finally watch it, I, it just didn't work for me at all. And I and at that point, I just kind of let it go. It was later that I realized there was a real cult around it and that there there's people who really love it. I'm really curious to know if like a 25 year old horror geek who'd never heard of student bodies just or, or heard of it, but never gave it a second thought watched it if, if you if you hate it that's fine but i we want to hear your thoughts on student bodies i i acknowledge that it is a bad film but i think it also does have some really inspired moments i truly do well so far you know it doesn't feel like we've done a ton of foreign language or international titles in the show and i think it's because a lot of those are hard to track in terms of u.s release date i'm sure that we've missed stuff but i am surprised based on how i've never even heard of our next film that when I went looking for it, it was on Netflix, readily available right now. Uh, the next film is called Winter of Our Dreams. She worked the streets. And at first he was just a client. But he became something more. Tell me about you. He was different. He didn't judge her like the others. She couldn't work him out. I didn't know you were married. You didn't ask. Why didn't you tell me on the phone? Just because I'm married doesn't mean I can't have visitors. Judy Davis is Lou, caught between two worlds, living on a tightrope. Brian Brown is Rob. For him, she was a link with a past he'd almost forgotten. You told me it was going to be about Lisa. Look, I hadn't seen her for ten years. She really loved you, you know. No, she didn't. For both of them, life had become a habit until they met. Brian Brown and Judy Davis combined their talents in an outstanding new film. Winter of Our Dreams. Winter of Our Dreams is a, a kind of a downbeat, dour, romantic drama that involves drug abuse and prostitution. And uh, I think, man, if I was a 30-year-old adult in 1981, when I saw it, hey, this is, you know, a relatively new and, and uh, open discussion of these kind of things. But watching it now, it doesn't seem all that interesting. Well, I think I think at the time, especially, there was this this push to make movies that were about how um, the 60s had kind of failed. And so you had a lot of failed radicals. You had a lot of people that had been hippies who were now just kind of drug addicts. And I think there, there were several films and several books and several plays that dealt with that idea that the 60s had a hangover. And the thing that works here is young Judy Davis. And if you know Judy Davis, she's a force of nature and she has become better and better over time. Um, it's also interesting because John Dwegan, who is the writer director here, uh, he's a significant Australian filmmaker. I love a lot of his work. This is not a particularly strong early piece of work by him, but I didn't know he had started this early. Like I honestly thought my first exposures to him came from like flirting and um, movies in the nineties. So I kind of thought John Dwegan was a new filmmaker. Then I didn't realize how long he'd been around and young Brian Brown is the star here. Yeah. They're great together. They, they have a real 
cautious chemistry there. You know, there's reasons that they're not instantly in love or instantly uh, romantic. And and the early scenes in particular between them that that kind of set up these characters and and you know speak to what they'll go through later. The performances are great. I didn't even recognize her when she showed up. That's how young she is. Like, it really threw me. And then when she started talking, I'm like, holy shit, that's her. And Brian Brown, who, you know, we usually like as like, you know, lovable rogue. He does some heavy lifting in this. He does some good acting. He's really solid in this. If you're curious about it all, it's certainly worth a look. And I think for for Judy Davis fans, it is a key early piece of work for her that you really should see just to see how when she was young, she would just attack a role. Hey, Drew. Yes. Did you know that women are on the Supreme Court? What? Yeah. And did you know that wasn't always the case? Did you know that at one point it was only men on the Supreme Court? And then in 1981, Drew. Everything changed. Everything changed with the appointment of Sandra Day O'Connor. It's funny because we, we talked about that last month. And it's so funny when you look at how quickly it happened. Two or three days to get her through her entire process. And they just bam, right to the court. And. But now we don't discuss. We do not, not discuss politics on '80s All Over. What we do discuss are films like Joe Clayberg and Walter Matthau in First Monday in October. The Supreme Court of the United States. For almost 200 years, it has been the stronghold of men like this. But now, on the first Monday in October, the president has done something that could alter the face of American politics forever. Who's the president going to pick? Who is he? Mr. Justice Snow, I'm going to have to ask you to rephrase that question. <laughs> this is an historic occasion. Like the Jesuits going co-ed. Good morning. The men on this court have got to stick together. After all, there are only eight of us left against all of her. Walter Matthau is the immovable object. Jill Clayburgh is the irresistible force. What happens when they have their day in court makes first Monday in October the funniest day of the year. Walter Matthau, Jill Clayburgh, first Monday in October. Clearly, like the hook of Jill, Jill Clayburgh is the first female justice, that is the hook. But it's not really what the film's about. The film is ultimately about Walter Matthau is a super liberal and her is a super conservative and how they find a middle ground. There's some value in this movie. I would actually say you might want to take a look at this because it was made at a time where we still had as one of the major ideas in pop culture, the notion that there was a middle ground that you somehow would find a way to talk to each other. And almost everything in this movie is back. It was based on a play and you can tell like it's a very stagey movie. Like it's a lot of sitting in rooms and talking. What's interesting to me about this is there aren't many examples out there of like two really great performances, but they have no real chemistry. They don't really pop or crackle together. Oh, I don't believe for a second that they fall in love. And that's cer certainly something that's implied. Over some the of the material, of some of the banter is so good and these are both great actors so that a lot of the scenes where they're just bickering and bantering work, even though there's no real chemistry or warmth between these two actors. There's no real forward motion to the film. The film is a series of arguments. So first they argue about a pornographic movie and she's arguing pro censorship and he's all, you know, hey, hey anything's uh, free speech and just let them do it. And it's a really basic argument, but it is there to give them room to argue about all these other ideas. And then there's a, another big case that then the second half of the movie is consumed with 
I thought one of the weirdest things in this was James Stevens, who plays uh, Walter Matthau's legal like assistant. The only other thing you know James Stevens from is the paper chase where he was a legal student. And it's so weird that this is his other role. Like, that's it. You're the guy who's learning about the law and arguing with older folks. The movie is like a three-headed movie. Oh, the novelty of a woman on the Supreme Court. Okay, in 1981, that was novel. So, okay, fair enough. Number two is young conservative female justice up against the more wizened and, and liberal male. Okay, fine. And then the third is the, the two, you know, the movie star aspect of it. You know, I think Matthau couldn't be bad if he tried. Joe Clayberg. I don't know if comedy's her thing. Ronald Neems, who had just done Hopscotch with Walter Matthau, which I think is so much better than this. Clearly, those two guys liked working together, and I don't see any real problem in the, the approach. It's just that it's so stagey. Even in the best moments in this movie, it still just kind of lays there. There's only one time in the whole film that I laughed out loud, and it's there in the middle of arguing, and they're arguing about the pornographic movie, and I forget what the, the line is. Right in the middle of their argument, Bernard Hughes walks into the room to say something. Here's the argument. And without missing a beat, turns around and walks right back out of the room. Bernard Hughes got the biggest laugh out of me in the whole film without saying a word. And it's a great beat for him. That's always a good gag. Now we're going to move over to a film that you said that you watch student bodies and you're like, how could this have a cult following? That's kind of how I feel about Disney's... Kevin Beagle, for years, for years, uh, for those of you who don't know Kevin Beagle, he's an old friend of ours. He uh, was with Ain't It Cool News for many years. Now he's a TV writer and producer. He's doing the New Warriors, the Squirrel Girl show for, for Marvel. He, for years, has been saying to me, Condor Man is this overlooked gem. He loves it. He reveres it from childhood. He has made the case over and over for why it's great. I, I have my kids here. We put it on. We made it four minutes in and my kids tapped out. Yeah, dude. Let me tell you something. The early 80s, you're talking to a guy. I love Hero at Large. All right. Uh, I, I, I could see the appeal of the, the return of Captain Invincible, for Christ's sake. I made it about an hour. And I thought, dude, you're a grown man. You're a professional film writer. If you can't make it through. It was literally like like torture, like mental torture. Well, part of it is that Michael Crawford is um, skin crawlingly awful. Wait, is that? Michael Crawford that I only know from the stage version of Phantom. Yep, that's him. And Oliver Reed. Oliver Reed. What I love is that nobody told Oliver Reed he was in a family comedy. His scene where he goes nuts in the middle of the film. No. Yeah, he thinks he's in like Moby Dick or something. I want you to find me, Condor Man. And it's not like he's <laughs> overplaying it like we talked about Ron Liebman last month in Zorro the Gay Blade, where he's clearly... It's not a great performance, but he's clearly overplaying it to the rafters. Oh, he's playing it like he's going to murder him. And I remember as a kid being freaked out by Oliver Reed. Now that I went back and I watched it, first of all, I love Oliver Reed. I'm baffled by him, but I love him. He is a dainty ape. He is this gentle animal who is in some ways kind of prissy and in other ways a gorilla in a 
Sue. You just nailed a point that I think a lot of our listeners should should listen to, and I just thought of it. Try not, like when we were kids to us, Lawrence Olivier was jazz singer and Clash of the Titans. You have to like actively try to go back and see. You know, we know Oliver Reed from his later career of when he was kind of over the top and kind of a little bit ridiculous, but it's really important to go back and, and see. Oliver Reed did some amazing work, and I don't want anybody out there to think that we, we look at these uh, then older actors like they their uh, uh, jokes. They're not. No, no, no. And if anything, I think it's just a weird piece of casting where you clearly hired him and nobody told him what the tone was. And that's Charles Jarrett's fault as a director where you've got Michael Crawford, who's playing this as hammy as he can. You've got the dad from Teen Wolf, uh, his buddy, James Hampton. He's the buddy Hackett. He's the, oh, I'm just kind of the schlub who's hanging out. I'm I'm your buddy, and I'm going to help you do things. And I mean, the movie's five different movies that are playing side by side. And the weird sort of James Bond parody stuff, it looks like it was shot in someone's pool because it cost $5. So you can't do a James Bond movie. And if they made this today, and I clearly believe somebody is going to end up remaking Condor Man, what they'll do is they'll make a $125 million movie that looks just like Triple X or looks just like Fast and the Furious, but will be gigantic. This movie is tiny. It takes like sincerity to want to try and either remake or emulate or, or homage something. And I honestly think that when they say, OK, Superman was a huge hit. We're going to do our own uh, uh, version of a superhero movie because we want some of what's popular right now. But we're going to hedge our bet and make it a comedy. So that way, if we don't nail it, we could just say, oh, it was supposed to be a farce. And I get that it's supposed to be a comedy, but it's very amateurish and badly made. And it's a shame because, like, I do think the idea of he's a comic writer who wants to test everything in the field. And he gets a chance to actually go and retrieve somebody from behind the Iron Curtain and help them defect. And he gets to and they'll the government will pay for his stuff and he'll get to actually be not a terrible idea. No, not at all. But here's my question. What Disney kid cares about Iron Curtain politics and stuff like that? None at all. The only thing I will say is there is a book that this was based on the Game of X by Robert Checkley. And it is one of those cases where when you read the book and then you see the film, you realize they're so different that they hired Checkley to write a novelization of the movie because it had that little to do with the book that he wow, published. Wow, that, that I did on. not know. So it's based on a book. So you Drew writes a novel. I am a production company. I option your novel. I turn it into a film that has nothing to do with the novel. And then I hire you to write a novelization of the screenplay. That's the order of events on this one. And uh, if Condor Man is a movie that I saw when I was 12 or 14 and I enjoyed it, I'd probably be a lot kinder to it now. But I did not see it as a kid. I saw it as an adult. And it's just plain bad. If you love Condor Man, don't at me. 1981 was a terrific year to be Lawrence Kasdan. This next film was the moment that he finally got a chance to do it all as both writer and director. And the result was one of the movies that helped introduce me to film noir, Body Heat. You're not too smart, are you? <laughs> I like that in a man. It made them break rules. She struggled that real thing. The fact that she invited me out there tonight and I am going and I am going to keep on going. It made them take risks. He's like a lot of guys you run into. They want to get rich. They want to do it quick. It made them say yes to everything. Body Heat. Rated R. 
I'll give a warning to our li- our listeners is that we, you're probably most used to William Hurt as like a lovable dad or a, a noble authority figure. Get that out of your head because he plays one of his sleaziest characters in Body Heat and he's fantastic in it. Kathleen Turner. Yeah, and you got to remember the early 80s, both of these performers, uh, William Hurt was considered the thinking woman's holy shit hot dude. And Kathleen Turner came out of the gate as what is she? Oh, my God. She's like a tiger. This is her uh, her feature film debut. She have, they have great chemistry together. I would say that of all the films, films noir that this most resembles, of course, would be Double Indemnity. Two sleazy, attractive people have an affair and decide that her husband, a.k.a. the awesome Richard Crenna, has to go. Uh, this movie has a phenomenal John Barry score, great supporting performances by Richard Crenna and a young Ted Danson, and a couple of great little moments by Mickey Rourke, of all people. The the weird thing is, I watch a movie like this now, and I wonder if you release the same film, same exact movie, what the conversations would be like, because the movie has, it's a, it's a kind of a rough movie, and I think there's a lot of it that works because of that. The first night they they meet... You know, the first thing she says to him is, uh, I'm married. And he says, well, obviously not happily, or you would have said happily married. And there's right away, there's this weird tension between them. He walks her home, and then it's clear that she's not going to let him in. And he keeps walking around the house, and he gets more and more worked up. And he finally just puts a chair through a door to go get her. All I can imagine is BuzzFeed writing an article going, problematic! And I wonder if there's room for these movies where characters... And I wonder if we move past the point where we understood. I don't have to agree with anything a character does to like a movie or to be interested in a performance. This movie is about terrible people who hook up and they each have an agenda. And he is just dumb enough to think he's smart enough to survive it. Yes, that is such a great performance, too, because halfway through the movie, you're like, okay, he's an idiot. Who thinks he's smart? Now with a diff- <laughs> now wait with a different actor, Drew, you would get that within five minutes. But with William Hurt, you're like an hour in, and you're like, okay, I thought he maybe was kind of a kind of a smart hustler. Um, now I'm doubting that. I think he was just a horny asshole. <laughs> I love Body Heat. I I, I I firmly recommend it. I think it again makes a great double feature with Postman Always Wink Twice with with Nicholson and Lang, and uh, it, it would be I think our quote-unquote discovery. It's not a discovery, obviously. But I think this would be our discovery of the week if it wasn't for the next film, Drew, which I absolutely love. Well, we might as well jump right in. And this next movie we've mentioned once already when we were talking about Blowout. We just kind of drove past it, though, because for a little while, this was a movie that Brian De Palma was circling. There are a lot of people that put their hands on this over the years trying to get it to the screen. It took Sidney Lumet to do it. And God bless him. He was the right man for the job because Prince of the City is a beast. His name is Detective Danny Cello. We make cases. There'll be big ones. You'll be the state star witness. He sees life as we will never see it. If I decide to do this thing, I will not give up my partners. He is Prince of the City. <laughs> He's seen too much. Was Moscone a partner? He's a friend. He's federal level. I want him. He knows too much. Your people are out to get you worse than anybody on our side. He said too much. 
he's gone too far to stop. Wait a minute, I'm a cop! Come on up! Look at him! Treat Williams is Prince of the City. Directed by Sidney Lumet, some say in direct response to the reaction to Serpico, which he did in 73. This is one of the most epic police procedurals you'll ever see. Like, the, if you like The Departed, you have to check out Prince of the City. I think it's absolutely fantastic. I love It's almost three hours long. It's Treat Williams. Drew, how did this not turn Treat Williams into a superstar? Well, I think part of it is because the character he's playing, uh, Detective Daniel Cello, is as morally difficult a lead character as you'll have in a film because he is a guy who, at the beginning of the movie, he and the guys in his crew... Uh, it's it's him, it's Jerry Orbach, it's Richard Forenge, it's Don Billet. They are all detectives together who, they're good guys, they take stuff. There is a, a fringe benefit to the job for them, and just everybody does it. It's not considered a big deal. I love the casual nature of it. If this movie if it was made today, or I should, we should stop saying that, if this film was made today by lazy filmmakers, you know, it would be black and white. This was a good cop, this one's the bad cop. And there wouldn't be like, oh, let's not confuse people with the moral ambiguity of it. Like, Treat Williams in this movie is both a noble guy and a dick. He's well, both. Well, and that's the thing is they roll him at a certain point. They begin the overall investigation into police corruption. And they he's caught. He is just caught cold. And he's given a choice, which is start to testify against lower level people and help them make cases or... You're going to go down. Your friends are going to go down. Everything's going to go down. And he makes a rule up front, which is I'll never roll on my friends. Bullshit. The thing that the movie does so beautifully is present this seemingly decent choice and how, man, it's just going to turn everything into garbage. And that's that's what I think Treat Williams does so well is break. But that's also a hard thing to then turn into star power later. Like, I, I think that's why it didn't necessarily carry him over is because the character crumbles and you see the weakness and you see all the all the fear and everything else and that's what he plays so beautifully yeah he's uh he's great you mentioned jerry orbach also great performances in this by bob balaban james tolkien and yep yeah, of course lance henriksen don't ever be surprised when you see lance henriksen pop up uh prince of the city was nominated for screenplay only which it should have been nominated for a dozen Oscars. I, I believe that firmly. It just goes to show that, you know, in a different year, this would have gotten 10 nominations, but uh, I don't understand why this film is not as remembered among the great crime films of the 80s, honestly. And it's weird because we started this podcast. One of the very first films we talked about, I think on the first episode was just tell me what you want. When you look at the whiz and just tell me what you want, Lumet felt lost. I mean, really lost as a filmmaker. Yeah, he felt like a, a like a really literate guy who was dipping his toe into pure spectacle and not liking it. Yeah, and I feel like he turned a corner here and kind of started to remember. Oh no, I'm Sidney Lumet. I make these movies, and I think then he went on a run that really felt like, oh, okay, that's the Lumet that I love and that I remember. And I think Prince of the City was crucial for him. The best way I can describe it is, you know that sequence in uh, Goodfellas when Ray Liotta starts to melt down and he's seeing the helicopter and he's trying to cook the spaghetti sauce and he's running around? That's what Prince in the City feels like, but kind of for an entire movie. I wouldn't say it feels that intense. It feels like that sequence stretched out and slowed down to two and a half hours. Yeah, Prince of the City. Check it out. Now for a film you shouldn't check out. It's Wes Craven's Deadly Blessing. Chilling nightmares. 
Wes Craven, rest in peace, brilliant man, made some amazing films. Also made some bad films, and this was one of his earliest ones, so we will give him a break. Deadly Blessing is a sleeping pill. I think Wes had real highs and lows as a filmmaker. I think Wes was a brilliant person. I think when you met Wes, what was clear was ferociously intelligent, maybe smarter than the movies he was making. Frequently, his movies are so up and down. Like, they're so different in quality. Do you get the impression from Deadly Blessing, which is, by the way, a dull religious thriller about three women who are harassed by Ernest Borgnine, Michael Berryman, and some repressed, sexually repressed women. And, and Ernest Borgnine's horrifying beard. Yeah, also stars a very young Sharon Stone. This is just plain dull, and it seems to me that... um he was trying to go for something a bit more mainstream, something that would like allow him to maybe this is not shock value horror. This is not a body count. At what point did Wes Craven decide the Amish were scary? Yeah, dude, look out for them Mennonites. Woo. They'll get you. Cause that's really the big thing is if you're going to do cults, I cults are scary. That's fine. Do a cult movie. The Amish are not who you lead on. <laughs> they are as unthreatening as a, religious sect can be and it's very strangely wrong-headed about what their religion is like and what they're like and it's just so much talk and get to the get to some deadly blessings women are bad women dirty women women i don't know have anything else to say about deadly blessing man it is yeah and even even a young sharon stone no reason to check i mean i'm glad i took down a little bit of notes because honestly if we had recorded this three hours after i watched deadly blessing i couldn't tell you what it was about that, I mean, it's just amorphous. It's kind of vague, you know? It's just, now, now we move on to, well, let's give a little background for this one, Drew. This was a movie that I think every kid in the 80s needed to see. Needed to see. I didn't see it in the movies. We will get into why it was so unavailable, but cue the intro for heavy metal. I recently showed this one to Toshi when I went back to watch it. You showed heavy metal to your four-year-old child. He saw it the same age I did. Four? I saw it at 11. Oh, he's 11. Okay. Yeah. And so I, I showed it to him, and his reaction at the end of the movie was, I don't know what this is, but every movie should be just like this. Oh, God. All right. For those who are unaware... Or even those who are, you have to listen anyway. <laughs> Heavy Metal is, of course, based on the cult favorite, I would should say, print magazine, infamous and famous for fantastic art, I guess you'd call it. Yeah, it was it was adult illustrated art. It was the first like American magazine. It was based on a French magazine called Metal Hurlant. But here it was it, basically anything that looked like the side of a van in the 70s. Yeah, Frank Frazetta type stuff. You, you like this film more than I do. OK, this is one that I am very, very fond of. And when I look at it now, I think it's kind of a shit bag. I think there's a lot about this movie that is really shoddy and really poorly done. 
I think the writing in this film is atrocious wall to wall. That I agree with. The screenplay, screenplays, I should say, uh, are like they're great in concept. It's snickering and childish. Really, it works best if you see it when you're 11 or 12, because then it feels like you're pushing boundaries. You're seeing something kind of crazy. The first major story in it, Harry Canyon, is probably most famous now if you're a fan of Fifth Element, because it's essentially a rough draft of the fifth element. It feels very much like there are pieces of it. It's a cab driver in the future. It's a city that's kind of, there's flying cabs. There's cabs on the ground. A girl kind of falls into his cab who's super hot. And he ends up helping her because of that. The bare bones of it feel very much like fifth element. That moment. Yeah. There's a great moment in that bit. I have a a snapshot of it in my brain. When uh, uh, the one guy gets into the cab, and he's trying to rob the cab driver, and the cab driver hits a button, and it vaporizes the guy. And uh, just, it's beautifully animated. Such a cool little idea. And, and that is an interesting segment, Drew. But then we go to Den. Den was based on a very famous uh, anthologized story in the, in the magazine that was drawn by Richard Corbin. And, you know, the art in that, here's the hardest thing. And I learned this when I tried to develop an animated film in the 90s. And I worked with a, a guy that had worked at Disney and Don Bluth. And we were trying to do an R-rated horror film. We ran into a lot of people telling us you can't do that. You can't do it for various reasons. One of the things that we kept running up against was that the art style we wanted to use was freaking people out in the early 90s because of how difficult it would be to animate. When I look at heavy metal, it's a great example of that. If you look at just the design of Den and you look at what Richard Corbin did on the page and what Den looked like, fine. Den is a big naked guy who looks like a fantasy hero. In motion, it's really ugly. And it is very poorly realized. And it's because the designs are too complicated. So when they're in motion, they don't work. John Candy plays a a nerd who gets pulled into an alternate reality. And it's all very sniggering and leering and tacky. And and I, like you said, it does tap into the 13-year-old boy thing that, you know, watching it as a grown man, I can't help but be like, grow up. Ivan Reitman and Michael Gross had already sort of established themselves as producers by this point, and they had produced live action comedies. This was meant to be a chance to uh, establish Canadian animation studios that would then be able to turn out a lot of stuff. There was a plan to do more of these movies. You know, they brought in different guys to direct different segments. So they all kind of have their own feel as you're watching the segments. Some of them work better than others. But I don't think any of it really holds up now as feature quality animation. And that is the hardest thing about this movie. If you're going to do heavy metal, if you're going to really pull this off, it's got to be beautiful. It's got to be something that really speaks to design and feels like you set animation free and you've done something really next level. Here, you've either got stuff like Tarna, which is too rotoscoped for its own good and feels very locked down or you have captain stern which is super exaggerated there's no consistency from from one to the other and as a result you do you sit through each segment and then the moment that's over anything can be coming yeah it's very ephemeral and and uh Heavy metal is a very interesting curiosity in American cinema. Absolutely. I, I don't think it holds up. I would recommend it, but I, I don't think I like it very much. What's most interesting is like forever, this was like forbidden fruit. And that's because you couldn't find it anywhere. 
Sony, uh, who has the rights, had had could not clear all the the music rights, which would have been prohibitively expensive. So for the longest time, if you didn't see it in theaters or catch it early '80s or mid '80s on HBO, you virtually had no way to see heavy metal until I think in like when I don't know when the DVD came out. I want to say. 2000s i don't know oh god it was so long and, and it was one of those things that and it was it was all soundtrack problems and it for years was kind of just out of circulation and then that kind of actually helped its reputation i think it benefited from being out of circulation i think if people had been easy if it had been easy to see i think people would have come around fairly quickly to the fact that it's kind of up and down and not great Drew, what is your take on the soundtrack? Well, I remember I bought the soundtrack. I bought it the LP. I took it home. I got it in the house. I didn't get the plastic off. And my mom looked at the cover and went, uh, no. And I was like, why? She's like, I don't know, but no. There was no rational reason why. She didn't know any of the bands on there. I'm looking at the bands on this album. It's Blue Oyster Cult, Stevie Nicks, Journey, Cheap Trick, Grand Funk Railroad, Cheap Trick Again, Nazareth, Sammy Hagar, Black Sabbath, Devo. Well, and some of this stuff, like I love the Blue Oyster Cult track, uh, uh, Veterans of the Psychic War. That's a great track from them. And I think some of these are really used well. They ruined Journey for me because now anytime I hear open arms, I see the cartoon boobs. They imprinted because of the moment that they oh, used it's it. It's such a gorky, weird moment, too. Oh, it's hilarious. It's so goofy. Um, I would I would recommend this film to animation buffs, right? But go into it knowing that the animation is, it's not all on ones. It's not 24 frames. It's hit and miss. And a lot of it is Canadian TV animation. And it feels like it. I interviewed Michael Gross a couple of times over the course of his career. And especially uh, in the last couple of years, I, I talked to him a few times about Ghostbusters. Um, and I found Michael Gross really prickly and difficult. He was um, originally the art director at National Lampoon. And a lot of the famous, famous, famous National Lampoon covers, he's the guy that came up with them. Uh, maybe their most famous cover, buy this magazine or we'll shoot this dog. That's a Michael Gross joke. He built that. And I think he was very, very good at that. He was the one that really wanted to bring heavy metal to life. And as an art director first and as a graphic artist, I think that's where Michael Gross's head was. I think this might have been one of the most personal things he ever produced. And when it didn't click, I think it broke his heart a little. He was really not into the film business by the time I started speaking with him in the early 90s. And I and I think a lot of it was he tried these artistic experiments and they failed. And he tried big mainstream comedies and they hit. And he didn't really like the big mainstream comedies, but that's where the money was. So, okay. And then the fine art just became a hobby. I wonder what he would have been as a filmmaker if this had worked. Now we move on from a sexualized animated sci-fi extravaganza to a very sincere and heartfelt war piece by a young Peter Weir called Gallipoli. you never heard of comes a story you'll never forget Gallipoli it's interesting they made a John Dwegan film this week because I've always thought of him as one of the you know guys that kind of broke out of Australian film Peter Weir he and George Miller basically were Australian film for me in the early 80s I still a lot of what I think of Australia was defined by Peter Weir. What I like about uh, Gallipoli, and it, it kind of goes back to what we were saying about Prince of the City, is that 
when you see something and you're like, oh, I know this story, I, I know this te template, it's important to at least give it the benefit of the era in which it was made. In 1981, this traditional uh, loss of innocence and uh, path to war story of two Australian, young Australian men who take very different roads to fight in the war, it's really interesting to see it done from A, a perspective that is not American, and B, that was done, you know, in 1981. This is not a war film that was made yesterday. Well, I, I like that a lot of what, what I enjoy about the film is the early part of it, there's the sense that young men kind of want to have adventure, and they, they think of war as it's going to be an adventure. You're going to go and you're going to enjoy it, and it's going to be cool. Not only that, not only is it a faraway adventure, but you get to be a hero. And I think they benefit from Mark Lee, uh, who plays one of the two soldiers and Mel Gibson plays the other young soldier. Um, Mel Gibson was already starting to, I think, kind of have a movie star swagger to him. He really he held the screen very well. He knew what he looked like on screen. I think a lot of great film actors, it's not just that they're good actors. It's that they know the camera really well. Mel Gibson from day one was very aware of how the camera treated him. And I think he's great in this. Mark Lee, I don't think necessarily has the same kind of on-screen savvy, but what he has, aside from gigantic teeth, uh, is he's really physically right for this movie. I like and that actor. I, I I do too, and I think he's right. I think he is the exact guy. I'm watching the movie, and I'm like, all right, I, I can clearly see that Mel Gibson has a, like you say, a very uh, magnetic personality, and he's very handsome and photogenic, and he's a good actor. And, and I'm like... This other guy who, who has built a very strong career in Australia on stage and television, but obviously never approached even a portion of what uh, Mel Gibson did. But he's really good in this film. It's structured fairly conventionally. It's, it's about the Turkish conflict and when Australians went and fight there. And so it's not built on a successful war. It's not a great war. It's not a glamorous war. I think what the film, what I give it a lot of credit for is it builds beautifully it has one of the best last 10 minutes of any movie that we're going to talk about on this on the show. I've seen this exact story told from the American perspective. A handful of young American guys decide that they're going to join up because they want to help Uncle Sam and do the right thing and be heroes. And so they go to the boot camp and then they go to the front. And so we know this story, but I've never seen it from a perspective other than either UK or America. I have now seen it from the Australian perspective and I like it. <laughs> well, and I think Weir was looking to break your heart and he knew how to end it so that the heartbreak is what you walk away with. Everything else is great, but he builds to the right place and you walk out of that movie shattered. All right, so that's it. No more movies. We're done. Uh, Got to go. All right, Drew. No, there's no more movies. No. Oh, wait a minute. Wait. Universal. It looks like Universal released something this month. What? That yeah, did you know that John Landis made a horror film at one point? Get the f Where do you even start talking about this movie? I don't know, this man. Is... I, I, my normal procedure is I watch the film. First, I write down any notes in my head. Like, I, what do I remember about heavy metal? And I write down a couple of notes. And then I rewatch it, and I write down my contemporary notes. 
With American Wealth in London, I didn't even know where to begin. Do I tell the story about how me and my mom and my sister would rent it on VHS nights when my dad was at the firehouse because he didn't like us watching scary movies together? And we would watch it, and then my mom would be like, do you want to watch it again? Do, or do we go into how I introduced it to my neighborhood friends, and it's all they talked about for the next two weeks is about how every time you saw him, he was more rotten, and then he bit the guy's head off, and then... Oh, Scott, have you seen The Mummy yet? Hmm? The Tom Cruise one? I don't want to talk about that. There's the most shameless American Werewolf in London riff you'll ever see. It's so bad that I retroactively, on behalf of Griffin Dunn, wanted to tear a theater seat out. I don't want to talk about a bad movie while we're gushing over one of the best movies ever made. The reason I brought it up is this. American Werewolf in London, wholly original, originally structured. It's not shaped like any other movie. It's not shaped like anything else in the genre. It doesn't play by the rules any other werewolf movie does. It is so strange to see something that is genuinely original start to finish. But what John Landis did here, and this is why it blew my mind that Student Bodies was like the first horror comedy. What he did was genuinely make a horror comedy where both sides. Most horror comedies are comedies that either lampoon or, or exploit or use horror tropes. Scary movie and student bodies are comedies. That's what they are. American Werewolf in London is a horror movie that is legitimately funny. And it's great character work. That's all the humor comes out of treating everything completely seriously. That's what I think the real brilliance of this is, is he didn't make it funny by breaking the rules. He made it funny by playing it completely straight. By having Griffin Dunn show up, dead over and over and each time the rot has gotten further and each time it's worse and each time he's different that's not just great in terms of what it gives rick baker a chance to do. it's not just great in terms of what it gives griffin dunn and david Naughton a chance to do. it's great because it respects the notion that this is really happening and this is what it would be like and jack would just be jack he wouldn't change because he became a supernatural character he's just jack and so that notion of playing it straight and having it be somehow screamingly funny because of it, I think is genius. And I think it's something that has eluded almost everybody who's ever chased trying to figure out why this film worked or trying to rip it off in any way. It's so hard to get because Landis had the balance perfect. The effects are unreal. It, this was the first film to win the Best Makeup Effects uh, Oscar. Yeah, they created for that. They had to literally just start the Oscar category so they could give it an Oscar. What, what always struck me about this movie was, uh, as I grew older, I thought that the, the romance between David Naughton and Jenny Agutter as the nurse is absolutely great. The dream sequences that David Naughton has as he's convalescing, those scenes gave me nightmares. Him running through the forest and, and, and attacking a deer, and then, of course, the infamous sequence where some sort of Nazi stormtrooper monsters invade his home and massacre his family. I could see producers or Paramount executives being like, hey, John, this whole sequence could just be lifted straight out and we'd never miss it. It's got the best double scare I've ever yeah, seen in a movie. Yeah, I guarantee you that note came up. And uh, it is, it's just a horribly scary sequence. And I mean that in a good way because it keeps you off balance. The movie has, like, legitimately scary ideas. And then it, it asks you to laugh along at this corpse who is gradually decomposing. 
it, it challenges you to laugh and be scared at the same time. And I don't think a lot of filmmakers have the bravery or the audacity to go, I'm going to make it scary. And then it's going to be funny because of character reasons, not because of shtick, not because of, of, of set pieces, but because the characters are ironically funny. Landis wrote it when he was really young, and then he and Rick Baker talked about it for years and years and years. And there's an infamous story about how Baker then took a job doing the howling because he thought, well, we're never going to get to make this. It's never going to happen. And then as soon as he got hired, Landis found the money and he had to quit because it was like, uh, OK, then that's how Rob Bottin got his break on the howling. And then that led to the thing. So but there's a sense that it had to be a young man's movie. This script had to have been written by somebody who didn't know that they couldn't write it. You just weren't allowed to do this. You weren't allowed to make a film that refused to pin a genre down or refused to play by any of the conventional rules. I just shared this one with the boys, and they had been working their way up to it for a while. And it was a movie that kind of loomed very large in the background, and they knew it was coming, and they were curious about it. And then when we finally watched it, the nightmares are terrifying, and they play just as flat horror. And then there's stuff in it that is so funny, you forget you're watching a horror film. And then you cut right back to a sequence that's terrifying. And the subway sequence uh, is the one that actually scared, I think, Alan the most. There is a brilliant shot of Naughton is on the escalator and he's go being pulled up the escalator and the camera is pointing down from the very top. And you just see the snout and the top of the head of the werewolf. And then Landis cuts to another shot. That's just to show the audience that it is there to let the audience know you're going to show it to them. And then you pull it away. It's when you refuse to show it at all. I think that the audience gets annoyed. So many great little moments in here. I love uh, is this the origin? Not the very, not the original origin, but this might be the most prevalent example of Landis's "See You Next Wednesday" gag. Well, this is this is the big one, and "See You Next Wednesday." The fact that they actually got to shoot, and for those of you who don't know, "See You Next Wednesday" was a porn film that Landis wrote when he was young. He was gonna make it; it didn't happen. But then for years, Landis made See You Next Wednesday into a running joke where there's posters for it in his films. People use the phrase See You Next Wednesday in movies. And in this film, they actually shot sequences from See You Next Wednesday. And for a big chunk at the end of the movie, David and Jack and all of the people that David killed the night before all sit in the porn theater talking about the curse and how he has to kill himself. And the whole time you're listening to this crazy, cheesy porn comedy playing in the background. Yeah, and, and if you pay close attention to the dialogue in that porno movie, it's really funny. Uh, it's Toshi's new favorite thing. The lines from that movie make him laugh so hard. And then we were watching Trading Places and Alan sat up and pointed at the poster was like, see you next Wednesday. So now they know the game to try and find it in John Landis movies. This was a film where you talk about loving the beginning. I fell in love with this movie as soon as Blue Moon kicked in at the beginning. And it's one of those cases where every now and then, you know that feeling where you're watching something and you just know from the way something begins, you're like, oh, I'm in good hands. And then the way that opening scene plays out and they get out of the car, the back of that truck and they say goodbye to the sheep and then they start walking and they start bantering back and forth. I was in love immediately and pulled right in. And I love these guys. And I want to know where they the, were going. The whole sequence when they're in the in the tavern where everybody's oh, with, Rick, uh, with. Yeah, with um, with what's his name uh, from the young one. Rick Mayle. Yeah, Rick Mayle with him showing up in there. And I love everybody in that bar. They are all perfectly cast. This is one easily one of the best horror films of the decade. It's one of my favorite horror films. And without question, it is one of the films that 
that led me down the path of cinema appreciation, obsession, call it what you will. I think it is as close to a perfect movie as you can get. Yeah, I wasn't allowed to see it theatrically. I saw it at home on video the first time, and it was my best friend, Bill Roseman, came over, and he and my mom and I watched it late, late, late on a weekend night. And I remember as soon as she went upstairs, we put it in and watched it again. Yeah, It is one of the most rewatchable horror movies I've ever seen. Uh, I love Friday the 13th. And if I never saw it again, I'd probably be okay with it. If I couldn't, if you told me I'll never see American Werewolf in London again, that would upset me. <laughs> all right. So thank you guys so much for all your listening, all your, all your patronage, all your support. Uh, next month, we're going to have uh, Ryan O'Neill. Um, we had Jack Warden this month. We're going to have Jack Warden next month. We had Mel Gibson this month. We're going to have Mel Gibson next month. Uh, we had terrible horror films this month. Uh, we're going to have terrible horror films next month. Uh, it is a weird, weird lineup. Not only are we going to have John Belushi, but we're going to have the movie that made me give up on the Academy Awards. So we'll do all of that when we come back for September of 1981. As always, thank you, everybody. 